Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Now just a reminder of where we have uh, been during Advent. We are calling this the, the great Christmas story. And uh, we began with uh, the great fall, talking about what, what was the actual need for Christmas? Why was it essential for us? And it, we went all the way back to Genesis and saw that it was uh, because of the fall. Uh, they had it all and brought sin into the world. And everything else that follows in the Scripture is moving us toward our redemption from that fall, which was promised in Genesis 3.15, in the first declaration of the gospel. And then last week we looked at the great delay, the, the time from uh, when Adam and Eve found themselves standing outside of the garden in that uh, ultimately lonely place where they had had real intimacy with, with one another and with God and with all creation. And here they were outside and they couldn't go back in without getting killed. And so, we see history again moving, and we, we went through the Old Testament and saw uh, the progress of uh, salvation and how God foreshadowed what was to come, and then there was the period of great silence, 400 years, right before the birth of Christ. Now, I, I want to, today we're going to look at that great trip Basically, the Lord Jesus Christ, God becoming man, and how far ultimately he had to come. But I want to tell you that where we're headed next week, and that is the great future. And the reason I want to mention that is because at that point, it's when we see where God is taking us ultimately it will be in that context that we will actually address the kinds of things that we saw this week in our country and that, that we're, we're grieving over at this moment. And that, I believe, we'll, we'll be able to see what the Bible has to say about situations like that. And it does address it, absolutely. Now, for today, I want us to look in Philippians 2, and this is a, an, an amazing passage, and it starts out by talking about how we are to act toward one another. In Philippians 2, Paul says this, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only 
to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, we have just read what sometimes in church history has been a great hymn of the faith. Lord, will you move this from beyond being great doctrine to being life-affecting, life-changing, For those who by your spirit are open to you. And Lord, will you help us to be open to you? And we're asking for this not because we deserve it or we've earned it. But by your grace and in your mercy and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, if, if we're going to understand the, uh, what, what this doctrine of the incarnation, and, you know, once again, when we say incarnation, it's in the flesh, carne. You, you always remember that. That's, that's you know, if it's in a, on a menu, it has to do with, with, with meat, flesh. I know that's not appetizing, but it'll help you remember so incarnate, in the flesh. And what we're talking about is, is God in the flesh. Now, to really grasp it, though, we, we've got to see how far he came. Because I'm, I'm concerned that for those of you that are in, the, in, in church all the time, that this could be one of those doctrines that, yeah, we hear it, and we hear it, and we get used to it. And we mustn't get used to it. This is life-changing, life-giving. It's what was necessary if what happened way back in the fall was going to be addressed. And so we've got to look and see where, where Jesus began, where he was before he took on the flesh. And that's what we see referred to here in Philippians 2.6. We look, take a look at the position that he had. Have this, 
verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, that last phrase, he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's the key to understanding uh, the position that uh, Jesus held before coming to earth. So what does that mean? Well, understanding the context here, uh, Paul is teaching about humility. And what he does is he starts out by talking about how we are to be humble, and then, then he proves it, and he says, here's why. Look at what the Lord Jesus Christ did. Now, there what he does is he, he ties together practical theology with uh, doctrinal theology. He, he takes uh, that which we, we see the application to our lives, and he says, humility, that's, it's essential among you. But he says, here's why. Because of what the Lord Jesus did. Now, here's the thing to remember. Right doctrine ought to lead to right living. It doesn't always, but it ought to. And that's really what Paul is saying here. You know, up until that point, they could say, but it's, it's hard to be humble. It's hard to treat them in a good way. It's, it, it, it's hard what you're telling us to do. And then he says, hard? <laughs> hard? Don't forget what the Lord Jesus did. The one who is dwelling in you, yes, it's hard if you try to do it in your own flesh, but look how far he came. How far did he come? Well, it says that uh, um, he basically, uh, it, it, when it says in the form of God, he's God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What that means is he already had it. It wasn't something that he was striving for. He had it. You know, we read earlier from the Westminster Confession of Faith, it said the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and I realize when you just read these through, you might not have had time to you know, meditate on it or, or whatever, but I would encourage you before worship to read these over and think about what you're about to read. Then it says this, being very an eternal God. In other words, the fact that he was God of one substance and equal with the Father. You know, too often we tend to think of you, you've got uh, the Father and then you've got the son, you've got the big guy, and then you've got the next guy in line, then you've got the Holy Spirit, and he's number three. Now, there is a way that they function that way, but in terms of equality, they are all equal. And what it means when it says that uh, of one substance, it's saying everything that it is to be God 
Jesus is. Everything. Now, we'd say that about the Holy Spirit as well. But that's what we need to understand. If we're going to understand (coughs) absolutely his position, he is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. He was all of those omnis that we talk about, omnipotent, all-powerful, omnipresent, present everywhere. And uh, what did I say? Omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient, all-knowing. Those three, he had all of those qualities. He is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. This is from the Shorter Catechism. In his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, all of those things he possessed. He wasn't striving for them. He didn't hope to have them someday. That's the position that Jesus had. We've got to grasp that first if we are to understand how far he came. Now, what did he do? Philippians 2, 7. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, what's it mean he emptied himself? That has caused great controversy down through the centuries in in the church and in church councils and various things. Basically, there are some that would say, well, he emptied himself. Well, that must mean that, okay, he came out of heaven, and when he left heaven, he quit being God for a period of time, and then, you know, maybe at the resurrection, he started being God again, or at the ascension, he started being, but while he was walking the earth, he wasn't God. That's not what it means, but you will hear some who will say that type of thing. He never quit being God. He walked the earth, and he never stopped being God. He made the choice not to take hold of that which was his as he walked this earth. I read a good illustration of this the other day. Um, suppose you are, uh, you have to go and, and either get a checkup or you're uh, going to visit somebody in a hospital and you're, it's a hospital you're not familiar with and it's not, you know, it's not like Lexington or one with just kind of one, one or two parking lots. It's one like MUSC or Emory over in Atlanta, one of those that uh, it's easy to get confused. And you're driving around and you're, you kind of are, are are lost. You don't know really how to get to where you're going to go. And so you stop somebody, and he says, uh, yeah, I can, I can take you where you need to go. Here, just pull in here, and I'll pull in here beside you. And so he just, uh, you both pull into parking spaces, and you begin walking to where you need to go. Now, you get toward the front of the hospital, and you find out that uh, the guy that you're walking with is the chief surgeon. And uh, not only is he the chief surgeon, 
as you get close to right up to the front of the, the parking area, he says, oh yeah, by the way, that's my parking space there. Now, here's the question with that. Uh, did he still possess that parking space? That was still his. He willingly chose to defer and not to use that parking space, right? And then the other thing is as, as you were walking along, was he still the chief surgeon? Whether you knew it or not, whether he was taking advantage of, of all of his privileges as the chief surgeon, he remained that as he walked along, but he willingly gave up the privileges of that in order to help you. You know, any, any metaphor, any illustration is going to fall short and, and really seem thin when it, when it comes to comparing it to what Jesus did. But I think that might make it a, a little more understandable. Christ, when he walked among us, he remained God. He still possessed all of uh, the, the qualities of God. He willingly chose to defer on our behalf during that time, even though we remained ungrateful sinners. That's the distance. Now, what's absolutely unique in terms of uh, uh, what we can relate to as humans but also in terms of other world religions is that he did it willingly. There's, uh, you know, especially this time of year in various news media and outlets and so on, you'll see all kinds of lists. Uh, you know, the, the, the top 100 richest people of the year and uh, the, the top 10 most powerful women and most popular, you know, you see all of these. Well, uh, there, there was one on um, Wall Street 24-7, which is a, a site, uh, a website, and it, they called it the 100 least powerful people in the world list. So I thought, well, I, I ought to see whether I'm on there or not. Uh, <laughs> surely I made that list, you know. But uh, I didn't even make that list, tell you the truth. Uh, neither did you. But <laughs> here's the kind of people that were on there. Uh, and you may or may not know some of these names, but I'll describe who they are. Like Tony Hayward, the former CEO of uh, BP. And uh, Jim Keyes, the former CEO of Blockbuster. Uh, Mike Jones, the current CEO uh, of the former number one social network, MySpace. Uh, they once had 70 million users. Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, enough said about him. <laughs> Hosni Mubarak, uh, the former president of Egypt, uh, who, of course, left his country um, in disgrace. Now, some of those people and the people on the list made bad business decisions. 
Some of them made other bad decisions morally. Some of them were basically victims of circumstances. But here's what they all had in common. None of them chose to be on this list. And that's the difference. That's what makes Jesus' incarnation absolutely unique. He gave his position up willingly. He didn't have to do it. He gave up that position for us. Now take a look at how how far he went. Verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. C.S. Lewis said uh, that that was like a, a shepherd becoming a lamb in order to sacrifice himself to save the rest of the flock. This is the doctrine of what we call the humiliation of Christ. And uh, we, we read part of that earlier, but in another part of the uh, Westminster, uh, in the Catechism, it, it talks about uh, where, wherein does this humiliation consist? In other words, what, how was he humiliated? And then it lists these things. Being born. See, for the creator of the universe to be born is a humiliation. And that in a low condition. Made under the law. The lawgiver put himself under the law. Undergoing the miseries of this life. And that just means everything that has to do with this life that he didn't have to do. Uh, Undergoing the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross. In being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. That's his humiliation. Willingly for us. Now, I've been, I've been privileged in my ministry to get to travel to a number of countries. And I, I can tell you sincerely that I've met wonderful people in every single country I've been in. But there are some places where I've been that I would not choose to go on vacation. Like the slums of Bombay, Mumbai now. Some of you have been to the slums of Port-au-Prince. I wouldn't choose those places to go on vacation or to go for pleasure. You probably can think of some places like that yourself. Multiply that by thousands from where you are here. Multiply that place in your mind by thousands. Make it thousands worse. And that only begins to give us an idea of the distance that Jesus came from heaven, reigning as the king on high, to being born as a baby with no control of himself. 
any more than any other baby has. Now, what's it mean to us? What's it mean to me and and to you? I want to give you five quotes from theologians and others from down through the centuries. Some of them are quite old. Some of them are quite new. And five things I want to leave with you. One, what it means for us is he made the way for us to have a relationship with God. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said this, the Son of God became man to enable men to become sons of God. Isn't that simple? The Son of God became man to enable men to become the sons of God. He made the way. It was absolutely necessary for our salvation that he become a man if he's going to represent us. The second thing, because he's been here, he understands us. Now, those of you that know me know what a a baseball fan I am. And so I guess I'll quote that. Well, he's not really a theologian, Joe Torrey. And Joe Torrey, I uh, grew up, and he was one of my ball-playing heroes. Uh, I watched him when he was in St. Louis. He went to the All-Star game uh, many times, but at three different positions, which is amazing. And uh, he's probably better known, though, as uh, a manager, at least in, in our day. And he'll probably go in the Hall of Fame, certainly as uh, a manager. Uh, When he first became a manager, uh, according to the Pittsburgh Press, uh, the New York Yankees announcer at the time, Phil Rizzuto, had this theory that you could actually do a better job as a manager if you were up in the booth, up high, looking down, because, uh, uh, you know, up there like where the announcers are because of your view of the game. Joe Torre was asked about that, and he said this. He said, no. He said, from up in the booth, you can't look the players in the eye. He was right. Well, that's what Jesus did. He came and he looked. He looked the people in the eye that he came to die for. And because he did that, because he set aside those things he could have had, he understands us because he was on our level. The third thing, Jesus made it so we could follow God. Augustine said this, God became a man so that following a man, which is something you're able to do, you might reach God, which was formerly impossible to you. You see what he's saying? Until he came, the whole idea of following God was was nothing but a mystery. What do you mean, follow God? What's that mean? And Augustine is saying, that. well, that's why he came. 
He walked this earth and he showed us what it means to walk this earth and follow the Father. And so he showed us. The fourth thing, he, he made himself vulnerable for our salvation. And, you know, I can't help but think how this even relates to things that are on many of our minds this week that, that happened. But Tim Keller put, puts it this way. Christmas tells us that God became breakable and fragile. God became someone we could hurt. And why? To get us back. He says, no other religion, whether secularism, Greco-Roman paganism, Eastern religion, Judaism, or Islam, believes God became breakable or suffered or had a body. See, that's what makes Christianity unique, is that he willingly put himself in that position where he could not only be hurt, but die for our sakes. And then, finally, he opened the door of relationship to God that we couldn't open. He just kicked it down. And we couldn't have begun to. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who you've heard me quote any number of times, a pastor who was imprisoned by Hitler during World War II, he had a series of letters to his fiancée. And in one of the letters, he says this, a prison cell in which one waits, hopes, does various unessential things, and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside is not a bad picture of Advent. You see what he's saying? You sit in the cell, and there's nothing you can do. You, you just kind of putter around and do what you got to do. And you're absolutely dependent that, that if, if the door to freedom is going to open, somebody on the outside has to open it. And that's what, that's what Christmas is. That's what this story, this account is about. That in Jesus Christ, God took on flesh and he opened the door of freedom for his people. That's what Christmas is. And that's why we so absolutely need the Lord Jesus. Let's bow together. Lord, indeed, we, we do thank you. You came so far, farther than we can imagine. And our little feeble explanations of it don't begin to explain it. Help us to be conscious of that. But as we become more and more conscious of that, will you just cause that to, to drive us to worship you? Not just here, but worship you with all of our lives, every single moment, as we trust in Christ alone for our eternal life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.